welcome to The End Game, a podcast about the positive aspects of aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I'm your host, Don Auction. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get on with today's show. It's a special privilege to have as my guest today a distinguished scholar on how society deals with aging. Margaret Morgan-Roth Gallette is resident scholar at the Women's Studies Research Center at Brandeis University. Since the 1970s, she has been publishing articles and commentaries about how ageism in society limits the possibilities for men and women who no longer conform to our culture's ideals of youth and beauty. She is the <clears throat> excuse me, she is the author of several groundbreaking books, among them Aged by Culture, Ending Ageism or How Not to Shoot Old People, and her newest book, American Elderside. Margaret, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Don. Um, I'm grateful to get a chance to uh, share the Elderside story with Americans who may not know um, much about the condition of nursing homes except that they dread having to become a resident there. Well, um, that is a fact. <laughs> Let, let's let's yeah. begin there. It's a, it's a very provocative title, Elder Side. Um, and of course, it sounds like an accusation. So can you explain what you mean by the Elder Side and who is responsible? Yeah. Um, I just want to say the nursing homes should be good enough so that a senator from any state should be willing to uh, live there or go there for if he has an accident or she, you know, needs a, a, a stay um, because there are transients there as well as uh, permanent residents, long-time residents seeking um, long-term care. Um, it is an accusation and it accuses the government of abandoning the 1.4 million people who were living in nursing facilities in the United States in 2019. And they were people of all kinds. Um, there were more women than men, that's true, about 70% women. Um, they were uh, mostly white, which means that uh, the white elite establishment abandoned white people. And they were indigent. If you can afford it in the United States, you don't go to a nursing home, you go into a assisted living or you go into a continuing care retirement community. So um, I think I want to back up just a little bit and go back to February and March of 2020 um, to exactly what happened. What I think the elder side means is those astonishingly high numbers of people who died in the nursing homes. Um, by May of 2022, at least 178,000 of those residents have died. That's almost 8% of them. In the same time frame, a million Americans have died, but that's only 0.3% of our 330 million. So people who happen to be living in nursing homes um, were 26 times more likely to die than the rest of them. So, you know, who's to blame for this? Um, what I want to make clear is that um, the first truth is that they would have lived longer. A Harvard Medical School professor explains why we didn't know this. And I'm quoting, 
um, when people talk about deaths from COVID-19, they say, well, they were old. They were going to die anyway. But people don't appreciate the fact that even if you're 70 or 75, you may still have 10 to 15 years of life left. So they, they, were, they should not have died and they would have lived longer. Um, so what happened there is that the United States divided into two groups. They were the outsiders. Some of them died. I mean, a million people died. That's far too many. And we can blame the government mostly for that too, although not entirely. Um, but there were two different groups, most Americans and the people who lived in nursing homes. So you 26 times more likely to die in a nursing home. That means that there are two unequal groups in the United States. There are other unequal groups, but those are the two main um, uh, unequal groups. And, that, and you can't get away from that fact. I mean, that's where you start and that's where you um, try to find blame. Um, and the, the second unrecognized truth is that um, no resident, however poor or feeble or impaired, needed to get infected with the plague. And we don't need to look far for proof that protecting them worked. In a small nonprofit Baptist-run facility in Baltimore, Maryland, whose low-income residents were African-American, many with chronic conditions, not one person had died, had become infected during the frightening surge of March, April, and May 2020. And none had done so as late as January 2021 when vaccinations became available and, the, and everybody in the nursing home who could get a vaccine got it. And they wanted the vaccine and they accepted it and they were leaders in vaccine um, acceptance. Uh, and, and that helped, but not entirely. Not entirely. So, um, so this uh, Baptist-run facility, uh, about which there's a lot more to say, um, what the director did, the owner and director did, and uh, how he saved them, that, that's a wonderful story too. Um, but at least 1,950 nursing homes out of the total in the United States, which is, was 15,477. So um, that number, almost 2,000, had no deaths at all through November 2020, which was the worst of times. And um, that in itself is a fascinating fact. In other words, they could all have been saved. If, almost 2,000 could have saved them. All the rest could have saved them. Uh, many of these are not, of the good ones are nonprofits and they're often run by religious groups, um, Jewish, Catholic, and Quaker. And they tend to have lower death rates all the time um, and, and, and also during COVID. Um, and there are 300 what are called greenhouse facilities and they are exemplary. Um, they have single rooms and uh, they have staff who are trained to deal with people who have cognitive impairments and other kinds of disabilities. And, uh, and they have an ethos of generosity and goodwill towards these people who are ending their lives there. Um, and in those 300 greenhouse facilities, the median death rate per 100 residents was so low that mathematically it was statistically zero. Wow. I, I'll just say that again. 300 
who had death rates so low, they were statistically zero. I mean, it, it, we need to know facts like this. We need to know that it was possible to save all those people. Well, let me just ask this. Uh, what was what was the the difference in the in the two thousand that uh, had no fatalities? What did then? This is before vaccination. So what what did they do right? The, the the Baltimore one locked down as soon as Trump said there are fifteen deaths and this will soon be over. He locked down that day. Okay, so he kept out everybody but the AIDS. Now, we've heard complaints about that. With the AIDS, he started giving them lunch so they wouldn't have to go out. And they were not people, mostly, who had to go to another nursing home in order to earn money. They had a full-time job there. Um, he had a full-time um, infection prevention specialist. Every nursing home should have an infection prevention expert. But in fact, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, which is in charge of the whole national picture, does not demand that, except if you have more than a certain number of people. He had only 40, but he still had one. And infection prevention specialists know how to, to deal, even with when your government has prevented you from getting masks and has said that, um, uh, that there's no way to test you and there's no good test and then we're not providing testing. That's what the national government did. I mean, it put everybody in, into a quandary. It made chaos out of that situation. But out of chaos, some people become resourceful. That's great. Uh, unionized workplaces have, uh, the mortality rate was 30% lower than in those without unions. We've only learned recently through some a Harvard study, Harvard-led study, that how many nursing homes actually managed to get through COVID without death. I'm sure there will be many studies subsequently of why that's the case. So we'll be looking to see if the, these are replicatable. That is to say, unionized ones do better. And we know why unionized ones do better too. Um, and, um, and religious ones do better, and the ones that honor their elders do better. And that's why some of the religious ones do better. And, and the ones that are not uh, understaffing, that do not have fraudulent books, those seem to do better too. But we'll learn more about that. As long as we're on the subject of, of long-term care, and as you said, it's a situation that almost no one desires to go into. Um, it seems to be a, an industry in crisis. Um, is, is there, uh, is it a problem that can be solved? And what would it take to, to, uh, to make it a solvable problem? Well, we haven't gone through the list of all the, the uh, agencies and people who are to blame. So uh, if we had gone rapidly through that list, I would be readier to say. I think the short answer is yes, it is solvable. But the longer answer is probably it won't be. And that is because of the way the legislation was set up originally. 
um, Congress set up a dual track system for indigent old people. Um, it's Medicaid versus Medicare. Um, it's hybrid in that sense, that is to say, some people on Medicare are there for short term. You know, if you break a leg, you go to a skilled nursing facility. Um, if you have a heart attack, if you have a small stroke, you may go there for therapy and expect to leave. Um, and some people really do. They're, I mean, there are good places, they, they get the good care. Okay, so that's the Medicare side. Then there's the Medicaid side. Now the Medicaid side, uh, covers long-term care only for people who are considered indigent. Now, they pay monthly for often very stingy care with every possible private resource the facilities can garnish. In other words, you, you drop your pension over to them. You drop your Social Security over to them, which, mind you, you this is, these are things you earn after years of work and paying taxes. Then once you are inside, this is the stingy Medicare, Medicaid provision, residents then control only a personal needs allowance, which is infantilizing and low. In Massachusetts in 2018, it was $18.20 a week, uh, which is under 80. Um, it hasn't risen in 30 years. Oof. So bureaucrats who never read uh, Dickens' Oliver Twist must have seriously debated whether Granny even needs $18.20 a week when everything is provided for her. Um, in, in some states, this means that residents can't afford to buy a doll for a grandchild or buy their disposable adult underwear because that facility doesn't provide it. Okay, that's um, it kind of a... The, the start of an answer of why the system is so fallible, why it has it had been failing before COVID and why it is failing even now that we say, even though it isn't true, we say that the emergency is over. The emergency is not over, but um, in any case, whatever elder side was going on beforehand is still going on. It's not, they're not dying of COVID, but they're dying of the same things that they were dying of before, which is uh, neglect and abuse. Understaffing has been a major problem. Um, so if you're, and, you, and basically some facilities were allowed to understaff. They, they provided the data that proved they were staffing at some appropriate limit. But in fact, there is no standard, national standard for uh, appropriate staffing. It, it should be, well, um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid decided in 2001 that it should be 4.1 hours per person per day. Now, um, it depends on how you understand that. I mean, some of those hours are just, you know, help with a shower or help with dressing, help with feeding. Um, Others, you really need to see a nurse because something is wrong. Um, it, it's two, it, 4.1 hours is still too low. <laughs> it's, it should be um, since 2001, which is over 20 years ago, what's called acuity, 
has gotten worse in the nursing homes. And that means that people who are sicker or more impaired or more seriously cognitively impaired are a higher proportion of the people who are in long-term care. So you need to have high staffing. Um, now, is this going to happen? That's really the question you started with. Um, if you think that understaffing is a major problem, and um, I think the reformers do. And I have to say, three years ago when I started this project, I didn't know, I knew almost nothing, frankly, about nursing homes. I, I had been in one once um, for a dear relative. I had visited her, we'd gone out to lunch, we looked at some other relatives, we had a wonderful time. I looked around, you know, I, I made my observations. It didn't seem horrible. Uh, and of course, one is no test. A one point extrapolation is worthless. So I had to learn a lot. And like um, as journalists do, I started uh, becoming a quick study uh, about what was happening. In, in March, uh, March 10th of 2020, I came back from a conference and, um, and I suddenly realized, well, the World Health Organization told us that it was a global pandemic. So I had just uh, gone to a conference in which I was the keynote speaker and people had been hugging me and now you weren't supposed to touch anybody. You were supposed to be at least, you know, six feet apart. And so I thought, okay, this, and, and the incubation period was supposed to be two weeks. So I said to myself, okay, maybe I have only two weeks to live because, talk about the end game, because people thought that COVID was a killer. That is to say, it would kill anybody. And I'm of a certain age. I mean, uh, I was then in my late 70s. So it was quite likely that if I had gotten it, it might, those might be my last two weeks. So I, I, I'm a writer, so I decided I was gonna finish an article. And then at the same time, um, the guidelines started to come out for the hospital about who should get a ventilator and who should be excluded from a ventilator. Okay, this is called triage and triage is supposed to save people who can be saved and the other people get some kind of palliative care and so far so good but the guidelines excluded old people oh. and it went by age in other words if you had 40 ventilators and everybody was under 30 all those 30 year olds and under would get the ventilators and then it, you know it kept going i mean there was a cutoff different guidelines had different cutoffs but by the time you got up to 50, 60, 70, it, it, you were not going to get a ventilator. You, you were, if they, if they followed the guidelines, if they used the guidelines, you, older person, were not going to get a ventilator. So I wrote my first piece about, I read the guidelines. My eyes opened wider. I, I mean, it wasn't as if I didn't know about ageism. I had written a book with the title, how not to shoot old people. Yet here, here they were basically, you know, like shooting old people just because they were old. And the interesting thing about the guidelines is that they don't allow you to eliminate people for disability because 
we have a huge disability movement in this country and we have the ADA. Um, so it, it, that prevents discrimination against people with disabilities. So you couldn't do that. And of course, you couldn't discriminate against people on race, on the basis of race. We have guidelines, I mean, national standards for non-discrimination in, in those terms. So who's left to discriminate against? Just old people. So, okay, that was my first article. And everything there went on. Uh, you know, I mean, it was a steep learning curve, but there was, I had a good background because I was attuned to ageism and everything that followed in the United States had showed signs of ageism. This concludes part one of my interview with Margaret Gullett. In my next installment, she is going to talk to us about her research over many decades in ageism and why she sees ageism as a violent problem for older adults. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, The End Game, at theendgame.substack.com. I'm Don Auction, wishing you all the best in aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I hope you'll join us for future programs here at The End Game.